ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Hello, and welcome to ID the Future. I'm Casey Laskin, and today I'm speaking with Brian Miller, who holds a PhD in physics from Duke University and is research coordinator at Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. Brian, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Well, we're here today to discuss a comprehensive guide to science and faith, exploring the ultimate questions about life in the cosmos, published by Harvest House and released in October of 2021. And I'm a co-editor along with Bill Dembski and Joseph Holden. And we hope you'll check the book out as it has contributions from leading ID scientists like Stephen Meyer, Michael Behe, Douglas Axe, Jonathan Wells, Guillermo Gonzalez, Walter Bradley, Robert Marks, and of course, Brian Miller, and actually many others. We're just scratching the surface of the contributions that are in this book. It addresses numerous important topics related to science and faith. And I hate to do shameless self-promotion. We'll get to your interview here in just a second, Brian. I'm going to let you do most of the talking, but I'm not sure if there's another volume out there that does such a great job of addressing a breadth of topics on intelligent design, but does so in such a concise and easy to follow manner. So if you can forgive the shameless self-promotion, I hope you'll check out the book. So Brian, let's get back to you here. The title of your chapter in the book is one that comes up a lot in the debate over science and faith. And it is, does the Big Bang support cosmic design? Now, the overall focus of your chapter is to tell the story of the discovery of the Big Bang and how it radically changed the reigning paradigm in physics and cosmology over the past 100 or 120 years. So, Brian, maybe just to start off, if you could tell us a little bit about your chapter and what do you say about how, what did most scientists think about the beginning of the universe, say around the year 1900? Yeah, around that time period, most physicists believe that the universe was eternal. It just always existed. It was pretty much the same. And the reason that was a very attractive view is because if the universe had no beginning, you didn't really have to explain where it came from. So it was a much more tidy philosophical system. Now, Brian, with your background in physics, and I apologize, I'm going to deviate from our script a little bit here, because I actually would like to learn more about this as well. Um, but with your background in physics, and obviously you were uh, very closely involved as a research assistant to Steve Meyer in his book, The Return of the God Hypothesis. Uh, you did a lot of uh, work, uh, the research that went into that book. And I'm wondering, before the year 1900, as you said, the eternal universe or sort of like this, you know, endless universe that had no beginning and no end, that was the reigning paradigm. That was the main view. But was that view based upon data? I mean, did they even have data in physics and cosmology back then to allow them to construct theories? Or was that just sort of a philosophically based view or that came out of some kind of ideology or philosophy? Uh, yeah. In fact, if you look at that very topic, it goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks, where even like I believe Aristotle believed the universe was eternal. So it was it was sort of a reigning paradigm, not just in the 1900s, but in many times during history. And of course, there was the Christian view that there was a creator, that God created the universe, and that changed things a lot. But the more secular ideas were very influential in the sciences around the 1900s. So this idea of eternal universe had won the day for the moment. So probably coming out of sort of the enlightenment of the late 1700s and 1800s that, uh, you know, the rationalist enlightenment thinking the eternal universe was sort of in vogue, I'm guessing, during that period. Yeah, that certainly fit much more nicely with the, the secular mindset that there was no creator or if there was, 
that uh, God was not involved in the world. It was much simpler to have a very materialistic worldview if material had always been here and didn't need a creator. Okay, very interesting. So Einstein made a discovery that began to change that view. What was Einstein's discovery, Brian? Well, uh, Einstein originally came up with a special theory of relativity, which was pretty remarkable. It's sort of the idea that, that light is a constant and nothing can move faster than the speed of light. But then he expanded it to the general theory of relativity. And what general relativity showed was that if you have uh, gravitational masses, they actually bend space. And then the bending of space actually determines how matter moves, which was a very different view of gravity than, let's say, Isaac Newton. So this idea of general relativity completely changed our view of reality. And what happened is people took that concept and applied it to the entire universe. So Einstein came up with the famous field equations, which described it in general. But then if you make certain assumptions and you look at the entire universe, you can create equations for the development of how our universe expands and contracts and uh, the dynamics of it. So... Did Einstein accept the implications of his own ideas, or did he try to dodge the implications of a, of a finite universe? No, that's that's really a truly dramatic, really a remarkable story. Because what happened is when certain physicists like uh, George Lemaitre and Alexander Friedman solved his equations for the universe, they realized that it implied the universe was really always expanding or contracting. But because Einstein accepted believed in a static universe, he believed the universe wasn't changing with time, he actually added a fudge factor to his equations called the cosmological constant. Now, that, that factor was completely legitimate from the mathematics. It kind of popped out of the math. But what was a bit less legitimate was that he gave the cosmological constant a very precise value, because what it does and what it represents is how space expands. There's sort of this repulsive force in space and that works in the exact opposite direction of gravity, which causes all space to contract. So he chose that constant precisely that it perfectly balanced out the gravitational pull in the universe we see today, so he could justify a static universe that never changed. So it sounds like a finely tuned uh, static universe, basically. Uh, yeah, it had to be absolutely perfectly tuned. In fact, other physicists pointed out that it would never actually work because it's so unstable even slight differences in the, the homogeneousness of the universe would cause it to expand or contract. So it was extremely artificial. So, okay, Brian, I'm sure that for those of us who know the story, we know it's coming next, but for those who don't, Einstein eventually did accept that the universe did have a beginning and was finite. And I think that that was because of other discoveries from other astronomers that were made that supported the Big Bang. So what were some of those discoveries from other astronomers that helped support the idea that the universe had a beginning? Uh, sure. And, and really, probably the most significant initial discovery was by astronomers like Vesto Slipher. And what was determined was that if you look at distant bodies in the universe, like galaxies, we know them now to be galaxies. They didn't know that initially. But what they found is that the light coming from them is redshifted. Now, what does that mean? Well, if there's a train that's moving away from you, the sound of its whistle sounds like it's a lower frequency than if, if the um, train was standing still. And we call that Doppler shift. Well, redshift is really the same thing. So if there's some celestial body like a star moving away from us, the frequency of light coming from that star appears to have longer frequencies than it would if it wasn't moving away from us. So what these astronomers determined 
was that bodies, that celestial bodies are actually moving away from us in general. And of course, what really clinched that argument was from Edwin Hubble, because he noticed that the speed at which a galaxy or a star moves away from us is proportional to how far away it is from us. So that fits perfectly with this idea that the universe is expanding. So is that sort of evidence that, that fully convinced Einstein that the universe was expanding? And of course, I mentioned George LeMaitre, and he actually came up with an expanding model of the universe based on the idea of redshift. So that all that evidence eventually swayed him. So Brian, how did the field of cosmology respond to all of this? Did they embrace this idea of a quote-unquote big bang with open arms? Well, actually, many physicists were very uncomfortable with this idea because they recognized that if the universe had a beginning, that had very profound theological implications. It, it, it implied that matter was not eternal, that time space is not eternal, that there could have been like a, a designer behind it that created everything. So in fact, the very term Big Bang was coined by Fred Hoyle, and he used the term in a very derogatory fashion because he was very honest about the fact that he did not like the idea of a beginning because of the theological implications. So I know that as time went on and the decades passed, some cosmologists tried to develop new models to escape the Big Bang, Brian. Can you tell us about some of those models, such as the steady state model? Sure. With the steady state model, which was actually developed by Fred Hoyle and, and other physicists, it's the idea that the universe is expanding but what happens is that there are these creation fields. So in the space between galaxies, new matter just suddenly appears. So the universe is expanding, but the density of mass, the distribution of galaxies always looks roughly the same because new things are always being created. So they imagine this process happened infinitely into the past so that the universe has always been expanding, but it never had an actual creation point. Now, the other common model was the cyclical universe. And what happened in the cyclical universe, the idea was that the universe expanded, it then stopped expanding, then it started to contract, and it eventually reduced down to a very small size when there was a bounce. And that bounce caused the universe to expand again. So the universe was essentially oscillating forever. So those were the two approaches to the problem. Now, both of the models were eventually disproven. Because for one thing, if either model were true, then you would expect to see galaxies of all different sizes. You would expect to see certain characteristics of the universe that we don't actually see. So another issue that really cinched the deal was that scientists eventually discovered what's called the cosmic background radiation. And that was a direct prediction of very physicists, that it's sort of an afterglow of the, of the Big Bang. So what happened is as the universe expanded, there was a point where you would have atoms would form. So the universe stopped being this, this plasma, and then light was freed to move in a straight line. And what we see today is this very faint radiation in all directions, which point to that afterglow of the Big Bang. And that was actually eventually discovered. And that cosmic background radiation was not predicted by either the steady state model or the cyclical model. So that's really what sealed the deal for the Big Bang being the best model. Okay, well, but Brian, that was not the end of the story here. It seems like as time goes on, we've just seen new and maybe more sophisticated attempts to escape the Big Bang. So what is the string landscape model and does it successfully escape implications of a finite universe? 
Oh, yes. So what happened is the steady state model and the cyclical model died out for a while. But what you're seeing today is sort of a, a, a revitalization of those attempts to rationalize away the beginning. And one of the early models to do that, or one of the models to do that was sort of the string landscape model. And the basic idea is that our universe exists on this multidimensional brain in a higher dimensional space. And what you have is multiple brains. And in one particular model, these brains will collide and every collision of these brains creates a new big bang moment. So what happens is our universe may have began in a very small state about, oh, 13.7 billion years ago, but our universe is simply one of multiple universes. And these universes have been generated through all eternity. Now, another model which uses a different mechanism is eternal inflation. And that's the idea that the universe is inflating. And what happens is little spaces in this inflating universe will occasionally become bubble universes because they'll stop inflating. And that's kind of like our Big Bang. So our universe, again, is simply one of multiple universes in this inflation that's always taking place. Now, the problem with all of these models is that they still require beginning because there was a theorem called the Borg-Guth-Vilenkin theorem that was developed. And what it showed is any universe which is on average expanding always had to have a beginning. So it doesn't matter if you believe in the string landscape model or in the eternal inflation model, they still also have to have a beginning. So it sounds like so far we're kind of like, I don't know, 0 for 5, 0 for 6 in terms of escaping a beginning and escaping the Big Bang. What about these claims from leading physicists in recent years, like Lawrence Krauss or Stephen Hawking, that the universe can be created from nothing? Do their models work, Brian? Uh, yeah, and that, that's sort of an interesting way to um, get around the idea of a creator, because if the universe began, you, you have to ask, well, what, what started it? And what you'll hear is people like Lawrence Krauss, who's quoting from the research of people like Alexander Vilenkin, and they'll say something along the lines of, because there's a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Like Stephen Hawking, I think, made that very direct statement. Now, if you actually go back to the original research and you go back to the, the actual technical journal articles, which I did, and you start looking through the math, what you find is something quite interesting, is that when they say nothing, they don't really mean nothing. What the math shows you is that they assume that a universe has already began. It's just the universe that started is in a very, very small volume. And then what happened is that universe in a very small volume with probably a scalar field or something along those lines expanded into the universe we see today. So when they say the universe began from nothing, what they really mean is that the universe expanded from a very small space into the space that we see today. So they get around the beginning by redefining nothing in a way that's highly misleading. And Brian, one of the things that really struck me when I was reading Return of the God Hypothesis by Stephen Meyer, and I know that you're very familiar with these arguments, was that there was this equation, the Wheeler-DeWitt equation, that had to be solved. And that was part of these attempts to say that the universe could have been created from nothing. But the ways that that equation was solved always required an input and information that sort of was finding a target in a vast space of possible targets. And that target implied that there was specified complexity going into the solution of the equation. So it was kind of like even these attempts to explain how the universe came from nothing, although I understand it wasn't literally nothing, but even those attempts to explain how the universe came from, quote unquote, the nothing that isn't nothing required 
some kind of pre-existing and predetermined information that would have required an intelligence if this is the way that things actually proceeded in the past. Am I getting it basically right? Or is that, is that, is that what the argument is? You got that exactly right, because what happens in, in the field of what's called quantum cosmology, and that's what people like Hawking and Alexander Vilenkin are appealing to as these concepts, is they apply the formalisms of quantum mechanics, which is what usually you use to, to understand how electrons go around nucleuses and atoms in the subatomic realm. And what happens, they try to apply those concepts to general relativity. And, and the Wheeler-DeWitt equation is an example of, of what that application looks like. And what they try to do is generate what's called a universal wave function. And what this wave function does, it talks about the probability of different universes coming into existence. Now, again, as you mentioned, what happens is to solve this equation, you have to create what are called boundary conditions. So like if you were to, let's say, uh, try to understand the, the sound coming from a string in a guitar, You have the equations that describe that motion of the string and the sound produced, but you have to know where the string is tied down. Those are called boundary conditions, like how long is a string? In the same way, to solve this Wheeler-DeWitt equation, you have to kind of know something about the boundaries of the universe. So you have to sort of infuse the equation with that sort of information. Also, to solve the equation, you have to make a lot of mathematical assumptions you have to create sort of a mathematical formalism, which is again, feeding in more information. So every aspect of the process of solving the equation to get, let's say your universal wave function requires the input of of information and a lot of fine tuning. So for instance, the assumptions they made to solve the equation were basically the assumptions about our universe. They assumed that the universe was homogeneous. It was was pretty much the same everywhere as isotropic. And so forth. It had a positive cosmological constant. So what they did is they fed in information about our universe into the equation in order to get a result that would explain the origin of our universe. So you can kind of see the circular reasoning taking place. Well, Brian, this is definitely an area that is completely out of my field of expertise. And I always appreciate your ability to boil these complex physics and cosmology and mathematical concepts down uh, in a way that makes sense as far as the ID evolution debate is concerned. So I just want to kind of sum this up. If you could tell us, given the totality of the evidence, all these different models that are proposed, the Big Bang, and then all the alternatives to the Big Bang to try to escape the implications of a beginning, what do you think is the best explanation for the origin of the universe? What's the best model? And what does it imply about big picture questions like, was the universe designed? Yeah. yeah. And if you just simply look at the evidence and say, where does the evidence lead? What, what, what does it seem to be telling us? What we see consistently from the cosmological data is that it looks like our universe had a beginning, that time, space, matter, energy started sometime in the past. And what that implies is that there was an intelligent agent that started it. And and coming from a Christian perspective, I believe that is the God described in in the Hebrew and Christian scriptures. Whatever started our universe had to be timeless, spaceless, uh, immaterial, infinitely powerful, and also had to be personal because only a personal being can choose to create at a particular time and at a particular point. So again, this is all very, very consistent with my understanding of a creator of God. So I believe that's where the, the evidence points, and that makes the most sense of the data. Okay, well, Dr. Brian Miller, we really appreciated your contribution to the book, The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith. I certainly hope that our listeners will check it out. It's definitely a book 
that is ambitious. It's thick. It's big. But you'll appreciate the fact that it has contributions from many scientists in the ID movement, including Brian Miller, who are able to take these complex concepts and boil them down in a way that makes sense for the average non-technical reader. So thank you so much, Brian, for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I'm Casey Luskin with ID the Future. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.